God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Truly, I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth you shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. We'll turn now to First Chronicles chapter 9. And we will read verses 17 through 32. <clears throat> now the gatekeepers were Shalem and Echub and Talman and Ahiman and their relatives, Shalem the chief being stationed until now at the king's gate to the east. These were the gatekeepers for the camp of the sons of Levi. And Shalem, the son of Kor, the son of Abiasaph, the son of Korah, and his relatives of his father's house, the Korahites, were over the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent, and their fathers had been over the camp of Yahweh, keepers of the entrance. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, was ruler over them previously, and Yahweh was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshelamiah was gatekeeper of the entrance of the tent of meeting. All these who were chosen to be gatekeepers in the thresholds were 212. These were enrolled by genealogy in their villages, whom David and Samuel the seer appointed in their office of trust. So they and their sons had charge of the gates of the house of Yahweh, even the house of the tent, as guards. The gatekeepers were on the four sides, to the east, west, north, and south. And their relatives in their villages were to come in every seven days from time to time to be with them. For the four chief gatekeepers who were Levites were in office of trust and were over the chambers and over the treasuries in the house of God. And they spent the night around the house of God because the watch was committed to them and they were in charge of opening it morning by morning. Now some of them had charge of the utensils of service for they counted them when they brought them in and when they took them out. Some of them also were appointed over the furniture and over all the utensils of the sanctuary and over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the frankincense and the spices. And some of the sons of priests prepared the mixing of the spices. And Mattathiah, one of the Levites, who is the firstborn of Shalem the Korahite, had the responsibility over the things which were baked in pans. And some of the relatives of the sons of the Kohathites were over the showbread to prepare it every Sabbath. Now these are the singers, heads of fathers' households of the Levites, who lived in the chambers of the temple free from other service, for they were engaged to the workday and night. 
These were the heads of the father's households of the Levites, according to their generations, chief men who lived in Jerusalem. Now, if you would, please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 122. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls, in security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you that you invite us into your presence, right into the holy place where our Savior is seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning over this world right now, bringing it into subjection to himself. And we thank you that he sits there and makes intercession for us. He's praying for us. We also thank you that he is the incarnate word And when the word is spoken, the word is spoken of Christ, our Savior, and his death on behalf of our sins. In his body, he bore our sins on the tree and of his resurrection, that your wrath was satisfied in Christ. Hence, he rose from the dead and ascended on high, and now We come to be with you and to hear your word. Bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So several years ago, Charlie told me that one of his co-workers uh, was being tested for dementia, Alzheimer's. And one of the questions they asked this man was, name three vegetables. Maybe it was three, maybe it was five. See, I have Halfheimer's already. And, and so he couldn't do it. And so ever since then, almost every day, I name three vegetables. But asparagus is one that I often, I know what it is, but I just can't come up with the name in Brussels sprouts. And of course, you heard famously how uh, up in Minnesota, when we had eggplant, which uh, no one liked, at least this particular eggplant. I, I'm, just, uh, I'm just opposed to it altogether myself. But uh, we had eggplant, and uh, Caleb ended up eating most of it, which caused him a lot of trouble later on. And so uh, when, I, when I came home, I was talking to my sister and telling her about this, and I said, well, we ate this grilled uh, vegetable. I can't remember what the name of it is, but it's, it's shaped like an egg. So, you know I'm losing it. 
and consequently, uh, that, that's one of the reasons why it's time to step aside. Because uh, like other men my age, you know, you just can't present things as well as one used to. Now, I wish I could write it all down and read it, but my fingers have uh, lost their powers also, so I can't do that either. So I'm just flat stuck. And that's okay. It's time for someone younger, and someone younger will be coming. But I told you the story because I want to... Uh, our, our, our topic is about Levites as gatekeepers. As gatekeepers, they were guards. They watched the tabernacle, and then in Chronicles, of course, they're being set up to watch over the temple. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam was told, cultivate the garden and guard it, watch it. And then Eve's made, and Eve is brought to Adam, and uh, then chapter 3, they enter into trouble, and Adam watches his wife undergoing deception, and he did not do what God said. In came this serpent to deceive, and deceive he did, and Adam, in full rebellion, did not guard the garden. That becomes a theme then all the way through the Bible. Because the garden was where God came to meet with mankind. And the tabernacle and the temple are pictures of that cosmology. So that the first room is like the heavens with the sun, moon, and stars in it. And then that curtain that divides the next room the next room is the Holy of Holy, where God's throne is. And you know, if you think about the tabernacle and the temple just in the way they are, they, there, there are five degrees, five zones in which people dwell. But you can't come into every zone. Where God's throne is, way up there in heaven, represented by the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go for a few seconds once a year, and not without blood. And he sprinkled that blood on the kephara, the covering over the ark, God's footstool, to satisfy God so God would get, not get up and leave his people. Into the first room, picture of the sun, moon, and stars, only the priests could go to do the priestly service, but it's not a hangout place for them. They go in there and they trim the lamps and they offer the incense and they change the showbread and then they come out. Only the priests. High priest into the Holy Holies a few seconds every year. Daily the priests come into the holy place but then they go out. And then surrounding this tent or the temple, whichever you prefer to think of, is a huge courtyard. For, for the temple, it's, it's really huge. For the tabernacle, it's, it's a hundred cubits 
by 50 cubits. And it's a courtyard. And the people that could come into the courtyard were only Levites and priests. The Israelite himself could come to the doorway, the forecourt of the court of the tabernacle, where he would come and he would be examined to make sure that he's clean, and his offering would be examined to make sure that it is without blemish. And if he's accepted on that basis, in that doorway, he could slit the animal's throat and offer his sacrifice. But he could not come further. He could not come up the altar. He could not touch it, lest he die. Why? Why was God so mean? Well, of course, God wasn't mean. It was a picture of the fact that God is holy and sinless. And if men get too close to him, they will exactly just burn up. It was protection. Then outside of this tabernacle area is a third zone. We have the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place, and the courtyard. And then outside is uh, a camp of Levites all the way around this tabernacle, guarding it. And on the east side, where the sun rises, there is where the priest camped. So you had to go through the priest camp to get to the entrance. But the Levites were there to stop you. And out beyond the Levites who surround this is the 12, are the 12 tribes of Israel. They are 2,000 cubits away from the tabernacle. They can't come closer than that unless they're invited. And there are three tribes on each side. And this is Yahweh's camp. And he lives right in the midst of them. And then beyond that camp is the outside, where people have to go if they have leprosy. They're put outside the camp until they're clean. And in that outside area, then you have the outer people, like the Egyptians who followed Israel out of Egypt, the people who were not circumcised, not Jewish, but it did not mean that they were not believers. They were believers. So if you think of it then just in terms of going into the land, you got the land and now the temple's being built, then you have the Holy of Holies, you have the holy place, you have the courtyard, and then you have all of Israel where the Israelites live. Foreigners can come in and uh, they can sojourn there they cannot own the land there because the land every 50 years reverts back to the tribes, so they would lose it. They don't own the land, but they can live there. They can rent a house there. They can work there. They can do all that. And they can even come up to the temple and they can offer a sacrifice there. But they're not under the same restrictions as all Israelites because they're not under the law. They can offer a sacrifice. But they too would be put to death if they tried to encroach in God's territory. Now, we all know something like this because we're all like this. I may be more so than you. I like my space. And I like my stuff. 
I mean, I like my space so much that I don't really like it when my wife comes into my office. How weird is that? That's pretty weird. But, you know, you got your house, and you got all your stuff in there, and, you know, it's stuff you care about, and you invite a family over, and their kids wander around, and they break your stuff. How do you feel? That's my stuff. Well, we get that naturally because God has his stuff. And his stuff in the, in the temple tabernacle are the furnitures, which represent people. And all the utensils like bowls and shovels, and those also represent people because the whole complex represents God's people. It's his vessels. He uses them for his sake, how he wants to use them. And he's particular about it. And all that stuff is called holy stuff. And so, you know, when you're in the tabernacle, which is movable, it's a tent, and you have to wander around the wilderness for 40 years, and you go here and you go there, there's a lot of traveling to be done. And so the Levites are brought alongside the Aaronic priests. Remember, Levi had sons, Moses and Aaron. Aaron had sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, and Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, and their descendants are the Levites. Aaron and his sons are the priests. They're all Levites. They're priests. They're divided into two groups. And the priests can only touch the holy furniture. And the priests are the only ones who are allowed to handle the sacrifices. But the Levites help. You think about... Uh, you think about bringing in a bull and... All right. <laughs> Anybody want flowers from Houston, Texas? <laughs> so uh, you, you think about killing an animal and all the mess it's created. Who's going to clean up the mess? Oh, well, the Levites are. They're just servants to the tabernacle, servants to the temple. But you have to be a Levite to be part of that. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we know that the church is the temple. So in the Old Testament, you had an actual tabernacle, which is glorified into a temple, this big, huge complex. And now you come to the New Testament, and in Jesus, we become the people temple. The people temple. This is progress of revelation. And let me remind you, because I'm just that sort of guy, I want you to remember. That means there is no future temple. That is, God's plan all along was that he would dwell in his people. It's a people temple. And so just then as... God was dwelling in his temple and his space had to be guarded. When you came through the curtains inside, you were in holy space. You had to have your shoes off because your shoes had dust on them and dust is the curse agent. And so you got to take your shoes off. So all the priests and the Levites walked around there barefooted because that's God's space and it's holy. So if the church 
is the temple, then so the church also is holy. And that's exactly what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. If anyone corrupts the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is what you are, and you are holy. And so, just as God's stuff is holy, the church has to be holy. And so the church has to be guarded. Well, not quite in the same way as the Old Testament, because, after all, this building here is not holy, it's just a building. But all you people out here, you're God's temple. And God's temple needs guarding. So in the Old Testament, God arranged for these gatekeepers. And the book of Numbers really is the book about gatekeepers, the book about Levites. And it's not a book that you probably enjoy reading. The first 10 chapters are all about the camp with lists and lists and lists of names. And then you come to the end and there are more lists of names and you think, well, my goodness, you know, after all, we're New Testament believers. Uh, we don't really need this stuff anyway. I thought of something after I made my book, so I, uh, just one second here, I've got to find it. So I wrote it on the cover of my book, two books that I read that were influential in my life. One of them was by a man named Timothy Weber. It's called On the Road to Armageddon. How Evangelicals Became Israel's Best Friend. The second one is written by the mentor of R.C. Sproul. And if you listened to this man named John Gerstner, you would discover <laughs> that R.C. Sproul is, is, is like his son. He sounds just like him. The intonations, the way he talks, that's how much influence John Gerstner had on R.C. Sproul. He has a book that is called Wrongly Dividing the Word of Truth, a Critique of Dispensationalism. Well, now you can understand that John Gerstner was not a dispensationalist. And uh, I have to say that I'm in full agreement with him. Now, uh, some of you here are dispensationalists, and, and that's fine. You have, to, you have to go with what you see, but you also are required to listen to me and think it through. That's God's requirement. And uh, I think dispensationalism has troubled the church too long. Why? Because dispensationalism has little value for the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, you see, the Bible's not the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to learn this a little more later on. The Bible's just the Bible. One book. There is no Old Testament and New Testament. The Bible came in four sections. So, after the first section's written, the second section was kind of a New Testament, new to what was written, and the next one's kind of new, but they're all tied together, and so is our New Testament tied together with the Old Testament. And so Numbers is very important, because then it's within Numbers that we discover stuff about gatekeeping, door 
keeping. So if you, we just, as a congregation, if you're, if you're reading the plan, I don't know if you are or not, and of course, it's, it's only a minor sin if you don't read it. I'm teasing you now. You can read your own Bible plan, that, that's, that's for sure. But we just finished Numbers. And we're, we're now into Deuteronomy. And the first 10 chapters of Numbers has a lot to do with the Levites. And so you, you go to chapter 1 in Numbers, and this is just, I don't remember how many verses. It's really long, and it's numbering all the people of Israel, the males, from 20 years old and up, because all of them are conscripted for the army. And then you get down to the end of the chapter, and it says, uh, uh, yeah, but uh, in the census here, you don't count Levi. Why? Because Levi is kept out separate to guard the tabernacle. Then you read chapter 2, and it's a list of all those people once again, and where they're camping around the tabernacle. And you get down to the end, it says, yeah, but you don't count Levi here in the count. And then you come back to chapter 3 of Numbers, and you find in chapter 3, oh, it, it says to, it says to uh, Aaron, I'm giving a gift to you, the gift of the Levites. And then here comes this chapter that's talking about how God took them in place of all the firstborn sons of Israel. Anybody here know how many Levites were numbered? From, ooh, I think it was 20 years old and up. 22,000. But the firstborn sons of Israel were 22,273. So, Levite for firstborn, you got 273, or 276, I can't remember, firstborns left over. What do you do with those? You don't have a Levite to take their place. And so those extra ones have to pay a ransom of five shekels. Now, what's that all about? And how could there only be 22,273 or 76 firstborns when the army was over 600,000 people? There could have be more firstborns than that. And it's because when you discover that ransom, uh, everybody's life is valued in the book of, of Leviticus. And uh, the most valuable was a man from 30 to 50. Can you imagine that? But a boy from one month to five months was valued at five shekels. And so we know that the firstborn that were counted were from one month to five months. So all the ones that died in Egypt, they must have been that kind of age. I, I don't know that for sure, but this is how you come up with the Levitical number. And the Levitical number then camps around the tabernacle, one on the north side, one on the south side, one on the west side. I know I'm giving the wrong directions, but I'm on the stage, so... You'd get them stage-wise. And then one on the east side, and it's Aaron on the east side, and then, and then you have Gershon on the west side, and you have uh, uh, Kohath on the south side, and you have Merari on the north side. And they're 
there to guard. And they have swords and spears. And if you march on the capital of Israel, you're not going to get anywhere. You're going to be killed instantaneously. No questions asked. Why? Because you're a sinner and God is holy and he cannot stand your presence. And so all these guards around are kind of, uh, kind of what you would call uh, safety guards. They're keeping you alive by preventing you from doing something stupid. And if you listen to them, you live. If you don't listen to them, you don't live. So chapter 3 has that same message in it. And if any man crosses the barrier, he will die. Then you come to chapter 8, and the Levites come up again. This time as a gift given to Aaron for the service of the temple, because Aaron and his sons, they have to deal with all the animals and certain other things, and, and there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff that needs to be done. New pots to be made, you know, things to be clean. Who's going to do all of that? Well, the Levites do it all. And so the tribe is given to them, and in chapter 8 of Numbers, you have their dedication. And they're dedicated, just for, just for your interest, because probably you may not remember this, they had to shave every hair off their body, then wash themselves, and put on new clothes. Because you got your clothes clothes, but now you got an office over here, so you have to have new clothes. It's like a policeman. He's got his clothes that he wears at home, but when he goes to work, he has the clothes of an officer. That's the way it worked in the Old Testament. Even the priests were like that. So you knew who a Levite was. Like the clothes he wore. And there's a dedication there. And again, the idea of watching, guarding, keeping, keeping Israel alive by protecting them from doing something stupid. Then they appear once again in Leviticus chapter 18. In Leviticus chapter 18, we have a little section about Aaron and his sons who get the food from the altar. That is their payment. They have no inheritance in Israel. They, they get paid by serving at the tent. And then the second part of the chapter is about the Levites, who are given to Aaron, and the Levites get the tithe of Israel, and they have to give a tithe of their tithe back to Aaron, but they get the tithe of Israel because they're also servants at the tent, but they're different than the priests. They do the lowly work. They do the guarding work. And then when you come to 1 Chronicles, which is where we are, it changes. In a certain fashion, it changes. It changes like this. So you have Gershon. And think about the tabernacle now, and it's got all these cloth coverings all around it. And they got to pack up when the glory cloud moves, the Shekinah glory moves, they got to move with the cloud. God is leading them. The Holy Spirit is leading them on the way to the promised land. 
but he's leading them in circles for 40 years before they get there. When he moves, you move because you want God on your side. You want his protection. You want him to fight for you. So you keep up with him. Wherever he goes, you stick to him. So what happens? Well, they've got to tear the tent down. And the Gershonites, they get to deal with all of the cloth. And they get some wagons to put that on to cart it around. And then you have the Kolothites. And the Kolothites deal with all the furniture. They deal with the furniture like the Ark of the Covenant, and the incense altar, and the table of showbread, and the lampstand, and the bronze altar. And all of these things are covered by the priests because Levites cannot see those and live, and so the priests cover them up. And the Kohathites take them, and they put their poles through each of these pieces of furniture. So you've got a guy in the front and a guy in the back, and they got them on their shoulders. Why? Well, here's why. Because they're carrying the throne of God, and it's a picture that God is up in the heavens. He's not walking on the earth. He's up in the heavens, and they're carrying them along. And then you have the Merarites, and they carry all the, uh, all the wood panels to, the, to build this, and all the pillars, and all the sockets, and they have wagons too. And then they march out. That's what they do. They serve like that. Okay, now when you build a temple, well, all that carrying is over. You don't do it anymore. So they have some reassignments. And as we've talked about, the carrying, the lifting God up on the shoulders to walk around in the wilderness so the nations see you coming with your God up in the air. He's in charge. That's over. Now he's already given rest and you're settled in the land and this big temple is built, so there's no more carrying. Everything's brought in and it's set down and it doesn't move again until the temple's destroyed. <laughs> and it's taken away by Nebuchadnezzar into a foreign land. So there's a reassignment. And the reassignment is some of these guys who were carrying now carry God's name in a different way. They carry it by music. We talked about that a little bit last week. They're the musicians. They lift God's name high. And Psalm 22 says, Yahweh is enthroned on the praises of Israel. That is, God has his throne by this breath of mankind on which he sits in the air and rules. That's the picture. That's what some of these Levites do. And there were 4,000 of them assigned to this, as we saw last week. And now some of them are assigned as officers of judges, 6,000 which we will talk about when we get to the idea of government because they become judges in the land. 24,000 of them are doing two weeks of service at the, tavern, at the temple each year where they're the servants. 
inside the walls of the tabernacle doing the cleaning, the menial tasks. And then 4,000 are gatekeepers. That's our concern. And they're, they're, they're at the front door, the way in, and they have different gates at the temple. And they're guarding all those gates, making sure that the unholy does not reach the holy. The only way to do that is through a sacrifice, through blood, and you really don't get in. Turn then, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me just read what I already quoted to you in verse 16. Remember, verses 9 through 15 are about the apostles who are architects. Paul's an architect, a builder. First, the metaphor is farming of a field. Then it turns to a building. And what are they building? They're building the church. And the church is the temple of God. In other words, this group of people is where God lives by his spirit. Now, he no longer, his name doesn't live in a building anymore. Now, it just lives in his people. And you get that image picked up then of God leading his people like he led them in the wilderness in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and following, where we're told that those who are the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. That's who the sons of God are, those who are led by the Spirit. Picking up that imagery out of the Old Testament, now God's people temple goes where the Spirit leads the people temple to go. And this people temple right now is all around the globe, and it's in this church, and it's in that church up there, and uh, it's in churches all over McKinney, little temples of this huge, big temple. And here's what he says in chapter uh, 3 of 1 Corinthians. Or do you not know that you are... I'm not in 1 Corinthians. Oh, I'm in chapter 6. No wonder why. Sorry about that. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple? Plural. The you is Texan you all. You all are a temple of God. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys, the word is, soils, corrupts the temple of God. God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. God's temple needs doorkeepers, guards, to keep it holy. Turn over to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians and in verse 18, uh, excuse me, verse 19. Or do you not know that do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and that, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 
Now we're talking about the individual. All these people right in here, all of us, we're this big temple. All joined together, locked together. All the different pictures like in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in Ephesians chapter 2 and in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. It, it's a picture of the, uh, one, one stone stacked on another, this temple built, but of course it's living people, living stones but here, it's the picture of the body, because after all, Jesus tabernacled among us. And now, in his body, we're his temple. But we're all individual bodies, too. And the Holy Spirit lives in each one of us individually, in this big, wide temple, corporately, but in us individually. And, and so, you know, you, you hear it in the Old Testament, a house, in Jesus' words, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so if a temple's going to stick together, of course, they've got to be in agreement. But when people start going their own directions, you tear the temple down. But of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you've been bought with a price, and the Spirit lives in you, and so... How bad is it when you fornicate with a harlot? You've joined the living God to a harlot. See, we need guarding. How bad is it when a Christian joins him or herself to another Christian outside of marriage, when the living God lives in the two of them and they're doing the exact opposite of what God told them to. How bad is it? Yet in the church across America today, the majority of young people are sexually Active. How bad is that? Where's the doorkeeper? You see, Numbers is teaching us something all the way through First Chronicle. So the whole complex of ministry of the Levites can be subsumed under this word gatekeepers, doorkeepers. Because the music that they make is God music, divine music, inspired music. It's perfect music. What's the kind of music coming out of the church across America? A lot of it's good. More of it's bad. Where's the gatekeeper? What we need are gatekeepers. Turn, if you would, to just back a chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And 1 Corinthians 5 is about gatekeeping. Look down at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, 
unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast that is the Lord's table. Not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with, but with the leaven, the leavened bread of sincerity and truth. Excuse me, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There's the guard keeping. And so in the rest of the chapter, as you know, he talks about a certain class of person, not lost people. This has to do with people who make a claim to be a Christian. And they come as part of the temple and they eat God's food. How holy is that food? Well, you go back to the temple. The priest touched the animal. You only got the part that was given to God and given back to you. You never touched or ate the showbread. You never got to drink the wine that was on that table or that beer. You didn't get any of that. That was God's holy food. Now here we come to a table Sunday by Sunday. And God's food's on that table called the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And you come and eat that food. I'm not talking about you personally, just Christians in general. You come and eat that food, but you're an idolater. You're a reviler. You're a homosexual. You're a drunkard. How bad is it? Well, back in the Old Testament, you die for it. If you touched it, you'd die. Well, it's not exactly different in the New Testament. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you remember Paul tells us that when we come to the Lord's table, we ought to examine ourselves. Because if we eat in an unworthy manner, judgment will fall upon us. And in the Corinthian church, that judgment fell on some, made some sick, some weak, and some, oh, believe it, died. Does that happen today? It sure does. The difference is, we don't have the Apostle Paul here to tell us which people died because they ate in an unworthy manner, do we? Or which people got sick because they ate in an unworthy manner. But it happened, and you can bet it still happens today. Where is the gatekeeper? Now, let me just give a little aside here because I don't want you to misunderstand. It's not like God is up there as some ogre looking for all your little sins. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, the sin is not your thought life, not this, not that. When it talks about examining yourself, it's not talking about confessing all of your sin. After all, when we meet together, that is done up front and must be or you can't come into God's holy house. You have to confess your sin up front. So by the time you get to the table, your sin's already confessed. Now the problem is, when you sit down in the holy temple and you look around the room and you despise somebody in this room or you think little of them like the Corinthians did. Some of them were eating, could care less if the other person got something to eat. Some of them were drinking, could care less if anybody else got something to drink. They despise them. And for that reason, some of them were sick and weak and died. 
not because they hadn't had all their sin confessed. Remember, up front in the meetings where we confess sin. When we get to the table, that part's done. The table's a place of rest. The table's a place of joy. The table's a place of celebration. The table is a place of proclamation. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you preach the Lord's death till he comes. How good is that? Well, it doesn't get any better than that. So where's the doorkeeper? I have just a few things to say on that, and then we'll quit. And so, by the sound of my alarm, you know it's time to quit. And not only that, you're ready for me to quit. So, in... Uh, in the holiest of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And in that room with the Ark of the Covenant is the Torah. In that room with the Ark of the Covenant is the jar of manna. In that room with the, with the Ark of the Covenant is Aaron's rod that budded. And then in the holy place, you have something similar. You have a table to show bread, food. You have an incense altar that is against this curtain, and it's prayer going up to the word. And you have over here the candelabra shining on the showbread, and it's light. And we already talked about these three things represent person, word, and food. Or God the Father, person. God the Son, word and food, the Holy Spirit. Doorkeepers, God's word must be watched over. So, I hope I don't take too much time, but here's where I'm going to do a little doorkeeping. We need God's word through and through. I hope this summer we can have a little, uh, a, a few weeks on how to read God's Word. I think we need that, how to read God's Word. But, but we need God's Word through and through, and we need it for what it means, not for what we want it to mean. And you see, if you have 100 people and there are 100 different interpretations, you are pulling the temple apart. It cannot be so. So we need God's word, and we need it in a temple fashion. But in our day, right now, God's word is maligned church after church after church, churches that call themselves evangelical, and we could become one of those if we don't watch over God's word. So... There are a few things that are creeping into the church. Well, some are creeping. Some have full, flat out made it in there. And you've heard me mention them before. One is abortion. We know that's murder. Has no place in the church and no justification from God's word. The next one has to do with pastors, elders. Now it's becoming widespread and almost laughable if you disagree that elders can be women and pastors can be women. Now, 
That's old-fashioned to think that way, some people say. Or that was just cultural. Okay, then let's just throw God's word out and do whatever we want to. The church has to repent, has to change. Then there's the issue of gender. The whole LGBTQ... I think there's something else beyond that, but I can't remember what it is. Plus an IA. Yeah, it's all queer. It's all homosexual. Every last bit of it. That's what it is. And God's word is perfectly clear, and we must stand on God's word. God's word, one of the treasures hidden in the temple, must be guarded person. God's people must be guarded. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And look, if you would, at... I'm still looking for it. (laughs) Oh, somehow I must have missed it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send him away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Okay, we go back. This this language is Old Testament language. When you're unclean, what can you not do? You can't go to the tabernacle. If you try to go do something at the tabernacle unclean, you're dead. So the priests were told to teach between the holy and the profane, the clean and the unclean. When you come to the New Testament, these two metaphors are mixed together, these two thoughts. Now here's what I want to say. And don't take it more than I'm saying it. Just listen to me. This is Old Testament language. And what Paul is telling you is there's a reason why your kids can come to church. You see, because today it's thought out there, church is made for the unbelievers. That is not a biblical idea. The ecclesia, the assembly, the temple is holy. This is not the place where unbelievers come. This is a time for the family, the household of God, to get together and have a family chat. Some people think because of that, 
services should not even be broadcasted over television or the airwaves. I have a little inclination towards that. It's family time. And once you know people outside are listening, you don't say the same things any longer. You change them. Some churches think it's, well, well, where you have an altar call, as if the meeting is for unbelievers. It's for believers. It's, okay, so then how can your kids come if they're unbelievers? Well, Paul's telling you. They're holy. Now, up front in Corinthians, he says of the believers, you're all sanctified, called as saints. Same word. The unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse set apart. What does that mean? It means the unbelieving spouse can come to church with his wife or husband and he's allowed in. He is classed or she is classed as a saint. And little kids can be in the temple and, my goodness, a part of the church because they're not unclean. They're saints. Does it mean they will all grow up to go to heaven? It does not mean that, but you have to think Old Testament-ish. Did all Israel go to heaven? No, one whole generation went to hell. And yet they were God's people. Now, there's a lot more to say about that and a, a lot to think about. You know, what does it mean, Old Covenant and New Covenant? All that kind of stuff has to be thought about. But what I'm pleading for, what I'm begging for, is that we see our kids as part. And so that we guard them. Oh, we have to guard our kids. There's a whole lot of nastiness out there. In the public school, what are they going to be taught? On gender. We've got to guard our kids. You let them on social media, what are they going to do? We've got to guard our kids. You let them to any kind of television, we've got to guard our kids. You let them hang around with the wrong kind of unbelieving friends, we've got to guard our kids. How do you do that? Well, dads, that's up to you. Dads. That belongs to you. So you get a kid, you start reading the Bible to them, and they're 18, and they're ready for college. By this time, from here to here, they ought to know the Bible. Just what we've talked about in Numbers today, they should know it. God didn't write it just so you could, you know, whiz over it like, ooh, this doesn't matter. It does, man. We've got to guard our kids. Because they're part of the temple. So we ascend into heaven where we are now, hearing God's word. Where, where are they? They're right with us. We want them to grow into making an outward statement of faith because we know Justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's guard our kids whom Paul calls saints. Our time's gone, and the last thing, the food of God, the table, we have to guard the table. 
Now, in lots of churches today, and it used to be that the table was fenced. You had to make a, quote, credible profession of Christ. People had to examine you. Otherwise, you were set behind a rope, and you got to watch people eat from the table. Well, I'm not for that. I'm for this is the church. This is us. And uh, uh, this is, don't misunderstand me. People came to the church who weren't Christians. Visitors came. But that's not our goal at NBC on Sunday mornings. It's, it's not for us to invite all of our friends who don't know Christ. That's your job. Talk to them. Sit down with them. Eat them. Teach them God's word. Witness to them. But when we get together, it's family time around this table right here. Family time. So when my family gets together, I say things I wouldn't say if other people were there. When this family gets together, we say things we wouldn't say if other people are there. Gatekeepers, doorkeepers, that's what the church needs. Stand with me. Father, once again, we want to thank you that in Christ, oh, we don't, even, we don't even know the privilege we have week by week to come to the temple, that is, your people, and corporately look into your word, corporately to be forgiven, corporately to sit down at the table and eat this holy food Not that the bread itself or the wine itself is holy. But it brings holy blessing upon us when we eat in faith. Because it brings the benefits of the death of Christ. And oh, we need them desperately. So we pray that you would bless us around your table. For the glory of Christ we pray.